I mean, I came to politics around the time when the pivot to Asia was happening. I was becoming more, I guess, politicized in a lot of ways, paying more attention to what was going on. Uh, I was here in the United States, becoming really disillusioned with the Obama era, not because I had many expectations, but because now there were some rifts that were happening. Uh, I mentioned the invasion of Libya, but then there was also Occupy Wall Street was happening here in the U.S. And it just seemed like that there was this continuity that not many people were getting. So I started to talk a lot about that. And as I started to do more research, kind of similar to yourself, I found out about this pivot to Asia. You know, I found out about Obama's foreign policy designs to focus more on Asia, to become more influential in Asia. Again, there was this kind of feeling of having lost Asia because of the way that the Bush administration took such a special interest in the Arab world, in the Middle East. And there was so much public relations backlash against that from the American public, from the world. And so when I found out about Hillary, you know, Hillary Clinton touring around, she was touring around Asia. She went to Vietnam and she basically announced this policy. And right away, I mean, there were results. There was a, a large military buildup that happened over those next five years or so. Uh, to the point where by the time the Trump administration announced that he was going to go full, uh, you know, full speed ahead with this policy, uh, the United States at that time, I think, had already shifted more than 50 percent of its military assets to the Asia Pacific. And uh, that was a huge transition. Uh, this, despite the fact that you had the establishment even saying that this policy was a failure, that it wasn't even tough enough. And then, of course, you had Trump come in and give the policy more of an offensive bluster. Uh, but really, it was just an escalation of the same. And so I really got into China more so as I began to notice that China was the focus of all of this. I, listening to speeches, seeing these policies, and then finally getting the opportunity now that I saw this propaganda blitz happening under Trump getting the opportunity to go to China and see for myself what was going on there, the difference between what the U.S. and the West was saying about China and that experience. And then also seeing like yourself that no one's talking about this. No one's talking about the rise of China, the rise of Asia, how politics, economics, th there is a real shift to this region in terms of influence, in terms of development, and in terms of really what the future of humanity is going to be led by. I mean, the U.S. and the West, we can see it. They don't have anything really to offer anywhere in the world. Uh, but this, for damn sure, is the truth in Asia where China is this economic miracle, does have this astounding level of growth over the last several decades. And its policies are categorically different in character to the U.S. and West. And if they weren't, uh, we would see a much different geopolitical situation. So I'm wondering, Brian, if you could discuss more, because I think what you said there at the end of it, nobody's talking about Myanmar, no one's talking about Thailand, Malaysia. Could you give us, uh, you know, your analysis of what's going on? What What is the U.S.'s role? What is the West's role there? And how does this all kind of fit into this larger pivot to Asia? 
and maybe any changes that you've seen over this time period, because we're kind of celebrating almost a decade of this policy, really, um, that has culminated now in this Winter Olympics moment. So uh, maybe if you could give your analysis of what it's been like to cover that and what's been going on. It's, it's interesting because I came to Thailand around 2004, and I've more or less been here the entire time. Either here in Thailand, I, I spent about a year or so in Singapore. I did go back to the U.S. for one year just to like kind of say my final goodbyes to everyone in case they were never going to travel over here, but, but they have. And uh, I think that kind of speaks to um, people who have an entrenched uh, mindset that the rest of the world is backwards and America is like the shining beacon on the hill. They have traveled, uh, my family has traveled to meet me here in Thailand and they're just blown away. You know, do what you think it's like and then what it's actually like are two entirely different things. And even though at the time, uh, when I came back from the US for the final time, I, I did not travel by air, I traveled by train and, and boat and bus from, from the US all the way back to Thailand. And I traveled through China by rail. This is before they had the high speed rail. They were, they were just mm. you know, finishing the first few lines. And it does, it just completely blows you away how, how advanced everything is, how hard everyone's working. I, I arrived in Shanghai and I mean, I'd never seen a city more busy than that. And uh, when you talk to Chinese people, how, how kind they are, how nice they are, it's just like people are people everywhere you go. But if you're in the United States, you have it constantly hammered into your head that they're not, they're different. Somehow they're different. They're not, they're, they're great people just like everywhere else. And uh, so there was that. And there's also the fact that from 2004 until now, you can see the shift here in Thailand, the economic shift, the geopolitical shift from a region that was still very much dominated by Western influence to crawling out from under that legacy of colonialism. Now, Thailand was never colonized by Western powers, but every other country in Southeast Asia was, every country around Thailand was. You had the, the French in Laos, Cambodia, Vietnam, you had the British in Malaysia to Thailand South and uh, Myanmar, which used to be called Burma. So people hear Burma, Myanmar, mm -hmm. it's called Burma because that's what it was called under British uh, colonization. And the US and the UK still as policy call it Burma because they refuse to recognize what the people there actually call their own country. Just, just to show you how blatant uh, the imperialism is. It's, this is what it's all about. It's imperialism. It's Western imperialism that has prevailed for uh, generations, really. And the, you know, World War II, you look at World War II and you saw a lot of nations try to slip out from under Western imperialism, especially here in Southeast Asia. And the 20th century was all about the US, the US leading the charge with the British, with the French and other Western countries, trying to reassert control over Asia. That's what this has always been about. Uh, when you hear about Tibet or Xinjiang or Hong Kong, uh, these these pressure points the U.S. talks about today. This has been going on since. I mean, the CIA was involved with Tibet back in the 1950s, and that this you know the so-called Dalai Lama, uh, he was uh, approached and uh, controlled by the CIA since the 1950s. And this isn't me saying this or China saying this. You can go to state.gov, and it's documents that are publicly available for everyone to see. And that's pretty much what it's been about. I mean, the pivot to Asia, this was just like kind of um, a propaganda campaign to, to really try to, to consolidate everything and really focus on it. But it's something that's been going on since uh, the end of World War II, this, this process of trying to encircle 
and contain China uh, by undermining the political and, and economic sovereignty of nations surrounding China, including in Southeast Asia. Uh, you, you know, you saw the U.S. was mainly behind the EU and NATO, and they still are very much so. And they, they tried to control what Europe does. They were trying to do the same thing in Southeast Asia. You have this ASEAN, which was supposed to be a Southeast version, a Southeast Asian version of the EU. And around the 90s, it just kind of petered out. And the, the countries here, they had, they had U.S. proxies in every country. They had this uh, billionaire Thaksin Chirawat in Thailand. You had Aung San Suu Kyi in Myanmar. And you had Anwar Ibrahim in Malaysia. And you had Hun Sen in Cambodia, but he was... He's always been 50-50, and he, at the time, he was towing the line for the West because the West was still extremely powerful and influential. But at that time, from the late 90s until now, there has been this actual pivot away from this Western influence and uh, a real beginning to sovereignty in Southeast Asia, and it's, it's been China that's helped do that. Uh, one other story I just kind of want to relay is uh, during my trip back to Thailand from the U.S., this was around 2006, 2007, something like that, I passed through Laos and I took a bus and it was through these winding mountainous roads. It was horrible. It was three days from Kuoming to the capital of Yenchan on the Lao-Thai border. And uh, at that time, you saw Chinese construction crews building these modern highways. Now those highways are done. And by road, the trip is cut down to a day, and now they have the high-speed rail. And you just have to think that the U.S., France, the U.K., they've had control over this region more or less for generations. Uh, China is just emerging as a global power. And what did it do with this opportunity and this influence? They started building and helping in a very tangible way lift these countries up out of poverty. Laos is an incredibly impoverished country because of its geography. It's landlocked. It has mountainous terrain that makes it difficult just to travel inside the country, let alone uh, send and receive goods uh, with its neighbors. And China has changed all of that. They've completely transformed that. They've taken that from a, a weakness to now an asset for Laos. They, they're becoming this hub connecting Southeast Asia to East Asia. This is what, this is what China is doing for the region. For Thailand, uh, this is this is something that I've been fighting for for like 10 years, trying to get across to people. A lot of people are very kind of superficial in analyzing countries around the world. They look at Thailand right now. The prime minister is a former army general. Uh, it's a constitutional monarchy. A lot of people, especially if they're, they're left-leaning, they'll say, oh, obviously a stooge of the U.S. Look at what they did during Vietnam, obviously. But no, uh, China is... Thailand's largest trading partner right now, largest investor. Uh, until this COVID thing came, it was the largest source of tourism where uh, China, more tourists were coming from China than uh, all Western countries combined. It was, it was, that, it was that, that good. And uh, these were much better quality tourists too than the type of tourists you get from the West most of the time. And uh, the high-speed rail is supposed to go from Laos through Thailand to at least Bangkok, but perhaps from Bangkok to Malaysia and even Singapore. And this is already under construction. So the Thai government right now is working with China on the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, and also something else people don't know is that uh, China is also the largest provider of arms to the Thai military. So they've been replacing all of their old outdated US hardware with Chinese alternatives. 
and uh, I, again, another little interesting thing that I've I've noticed since I've been here is uh, back before a little bit before 2014, when the U.S. overthrew the the government of Ukraine, Thailand was actually going to buy tanks from Ukraine. So they want to try to balance their ties. They don't want to be too far in any camp. Just kind of be straight down the middle and have good relations with everybody. But when the U.S. overthrew the government in Ukraine in 2014, they could not deliver the tanks. So this is why uh, Thailand bought from China instead. So it's just another one of those examples of how the U.S. goes in and just wrecks every, everything they touch. And they did it very deliberately. It wasn't, wasn't like it was an accident. They did this very deliberately. Uh, so uh, just... Being here in Thailand all of these years and watching how things have transformed, how all of the signs used to be in English and Japanese to cater to those type of uh, tourists and investors to now uh, English schools offering Mandarin classes. It's it's something that if you've been paying attention to, it's it's kind of exciting to watch the change and, and watch the confidence of people in Asia, in Thailand, in neighboring countries, the, their confidence grow and this concept that they're somehow underneath this this legacy of Western imperialism shed away. It's 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 very good. It's very good, but of course, the West will not do this without a fight. So this is what we still see. We still see U.S. backed protesters here in Thailand, in Myanmar. They they made much more progress in undermining uh, uh, the sovereignty in Myanmar. So you have this conflict right now where, where you have the opposition. I mean, they're like they're like ISIS. They are such extremists and so impossible to talk to, and they are burning their country to the ground right now. And so the, the U.S. is still posing a, a huge danger to the region, and this is what their pivot is about. It's not about competing with China. It's about burning everything down to deny it, uh, deny it to China, and also just deny Asia this chance at rising and shining on the global stage.